Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, August 30. I'm Katrina Blowers. I'm going to be stepping into the shoes of Tom Tilly for the next three weeks. Tom's off to welcome his first child into the world, which is super exciting for Tom. But before he went on leave, we had the most extraordinary chat with a woman called Alison Pennington, known as the poor economist. We were on the arse end of things, but it wasn't our fault that we were but then that was also combined with this rule like pull yourself by your bootstraps sort of approach as well of like if you work hard enough you can probably get somewhere so coming up in the second half of this episode the first part of two of these incredible chats where tom and i talk with alison pennington about what it's like to grow up really poor but first up annika is here with the headlines hey annika i had a really great listen to your podcast episode with jam on the weekend briefing that must have been weird to have the tables turned and for you to be a guest on this show. It was. Uh, get used to it because I think they want to eventually try it with all of us, but <laughs> oh, yeah, no. I had to get <laughs> used to a little bit over the years um, because I did become the story uh, very briefly for a while there. I'm happy being back behind the mic and writing the stories and not the person actually, I guess, the subject of that. So, um, yes, a little bit strange for me, but it was great to chat with Jam. I love what she's doing on the weekends. Yeah, me too. And I encourage everyone to go and have a listen to that episode with you. I learned so much more about you and it was a really fascinating chat. All right, let's dive into the headlines of the day. The US says an overnight drone strike has taken out suicide bombers about to carry out another attack on Kabul International Airport. So the Pentagon says that strike against the terror group ISIS-K caused significant secondary explosions and that really means that it points to a substantial amount of explosive material that was in that vehicle. The US Embassy in Kabul warned of a specific credible threat and has urged those hoping to evacuate to now leave the airport. ISIS-K claimed responsibility for the bombing last Friday that killed more than 180 people including 13 US troops and three British citizens. US troops will withdraw from Kabul tomorrow. And Great Britain has now officially withdrawn from Afghanistan with the final aircraft touching base in the UK overnight. Now, all of this comes after President Joe Biden said over the weekend that Kabul airport was highly likely to be the target of another attack before that August 31 withdrawal deadline. Victoria is starting the week with an extended COVID lockdown with case numbers continuing to rise across the state. Obviously with almost 100 cases uh, where many of them uh, remain mysteries, many of them were out in the community during their infectious period, it is not going to be possible for us to be able to open up our Victorian community in just a couple of days' time. Premier Dan Andrews there telling everyone the news that they did not want to hear. Uh, Nine Newspapers is reporting the government will consider whether the state can safely ease some of those restrictions, including reopening playgrounds and, importantly, allowing Year 12 students back into the classroom. Restrictions were due to be lifted on Thursday, September 2, but with 92 cases announced yesterday, the lockdown will be extended for potentially another week. We're not too sure how long, actually. It's the largest number of cases to record it in a single day since the 110 on September 2 last year when Melbourne went through that massive second wave. So really disappointing for a lot of Victorians here. 
I bet. And, uh, you know, we've been looking at New Zealand for so long and thinking how great they were doing, but they actually had their worst day of the pandemic, recording 83 new infections. Uh, The PM, Jacinda Ardern, is going to consider tougher restrictions there too. Hurricane Ida is heading for the south coast of the United States and is expected to make landfall today. Prepare yourselves. If you're going to leave, you need to do that now. That's Latoya Cantrell, the New Orleans mayor, telling locals to pack up and get out of town now. Ida is hovering in the Gulf of Mexico and is expected to hit the coast with winds in excess of 185 kilometres an hour. It's currently rated a Category 4 storm, just one short of the highest level of alert. Governor John Bell Edwards said time is now running out. Sum it up by saying this will be one of the strongest hurricanes to hit anywhere in Louisiana since at least the 1850s. We can also tell you that your window of time is closing. So how about this timing, Annika? Uh, Yesterday actually marked the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, which was so devastating, um, killing more than 1,800 people, flooding 80% of the city. So I think everyone's holding their breath, hoping that this won't be as bad as Mm. that terrible storm. And the federal coalition has taken another fall in the latest news poll. The poll for the Australian newspaper found support for Prime Minister Scott Morrison has lifted despite almost 60% of the country being under some form of COVID lockdown. But the coalition's primary vote fell three points to 36%. It's actually the lowest primary vote for the Liberal and Nationals since March 2019. It's more than two points down on the May 2019 election result. Support for Labor also went up to 40%. And that's the first time since 2018 that Labor has recorded popular support in the 40s, having recorded just 33.3% at the last election. So on a two-party preferred split, Labor now leads the coalition 54 to 46%. What do you make of all this, Annika? Do you think it's something concrete or like, you know, we're heading towards the polls, I guess, (laughs) early next year? What What do you think? Look, this is the first one where I think the coalition actually will be worried. When we talk about primary vote, that's the percentage of people that would put the Liberal Party or the Labor Party or the coalition or the Labor Party first on their ballot. So there's always, it doesn't add up to 100 because some people vote independence or donkey vote or just don't decide until a little bit closer. So you're never going to get outside of the sort of range of 30s and 40s. It's a lot harder for the coalition to win on a lower primary vote. They don't get as many of those sort of flow on preferences from smaller parties. For it to be once equated to 54-46, that's quite high for Labor. It also means that it's outside the margin of error. So with all these polls, because we know polling isn't right, they do build in a little bit of an error, which you can often, you know, see people around Parliament House go, well, oh, that's the reason because it's within the margin of error and they got it wrong. This is actually even taking into account that margin of error. Labor Mm. is still considerably up. Now, It's interesting because we've had some polling in our newspaper that said that people are returning to incumbents, so the government that's already in, of whatever Mm. stripe that is in New South Wales or Victoria. We're backing the people that are in because we get scared when we're at the height of a crisis. We've seen that at every state election, so it really would be against the grain for the coalition to lose the next election. I wouldn't write them off yet just because 
I've written a book on Scott Morrison and <laughs> very into elections and very into campaigning. Yes. He's quite a master of it, but that is really, really bad for the coalition. And I think it'll be an interesting day in Canberra for those that can make it there for the next sitting week. An outrage was sparked over the weekend after an SBS report revealed Tokyo Paralympians would not receive cash prizes for medal wins as their Olympic counterparts did. Australian Tokyo Olympians were given cash prizes for a podium finish with gold worth $20,000, silver $15,000 and bronze still worth $10,000 from the AOC's medal incentive program. Yeah, Annika, this is something I didn't even know existed. Um, I thought that the glory (laughs) of a gold and possibly all of those advertising deals that come along with it was probably incentive enough. Uh, A spokesperson for the Paralympics Committee said that the Paralympics Australia didn't have nor has ever had the funding to award those medal bonuses. Paralympic sprinter and 2016 Paralympian of the Year, Scott Reardon, says that ultimately the absence of a medal bonus speaks to a wider issue of scant funding in Australian parasport. Thanks, Annika. Up next, Tom Tilly makes a little cameo to bring you the extraordinary story of Alison Pennington, the poor economist, and what it's really like to grow up in Australia in dire poverty. Imagine being permanently in survival mode, constantly defensive, anxious, sick, no time to think. Could be describing anything right, Katrina, but we're actually describing being poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So economist Alison Pennington, she has become really open recently about her childhood living in extreme poverty until about six years ago when her life turned around. She says she was completely consumed by financial stress. Her childhood involved, you know, her and her siblings having to do things like pick up cans off the Adelaide Oval just so they could afford to do anything extra at all, like things we take for granted, um, school trips, uh, going to the movies, things like that. Yeah, so we're going to tell her story here on The Briefing. She just wrote a little bit about it on Twitter recently and I saw her and just went, hang on a minute, that sounds really interesting. She went on to do a Masters of Political Economy at Sydney Uni and now works as a senior economist at the Australia Institute, which is a, a progressive think tank basically offering up ideas on economic policy, often critical of the government too. Um, So we want to get into her personal story. Alison Pennington, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us about how you grew up. Oh, well, I I come from western suburbs of Adelaide. Um, Grew up in a family of six, three boys, just me. For me, in my community, it was the experience that I saw everywhere around me was like this, but it's an experience of being skint and just trying to find work and common stories about experiences of surviving the welfare system. When I say the experience of poverty is one that affects your thinking, Mm. um, it's because, yeah, when you don't know if like the basic survival requirements of being human are going to be met from week to week, uh, just large volumes of your brain is focused on how it is that you're going to secure those extra few dollars whether you're going to hustle and pick up extra side work and, you know, it's that experience of always having to find anything you can find in order to build up that safety blanket. And that's another experience of precarity is just always obsessing about rainy day kind of buffers. Mm. But when the human brain is entirely focused on 
meeting its basic needs. It can't engage in those broader high-level, you know, thinking. And, of course, that kind of thinking is necessary to actually change your conditions and to do something about being at the bottom. And that's why, yeah, poverty is incredibly disempowering and profoundly unfair. And it's unusual for an economist to, you know, for someone like me to be in a mm. position to, to know what it looks like behind the numbers, so to speak. Yeah, I guess that's why we wanted to speak to you because I imagine most economists come from more of a middle-class upbringing and, and don't offer the same insights that you would. How early in your life did you start to sort of, I guess, become aware of this reality of being stuck in survival mode? I grew up in an environment where I never thought poverty was my fault. So I grew up in, a, I guess you could say, the last kind of dying embers of working-class Australian culture where there was a strong sense in the community and in my family that you know, we were on the arse end of things, but it wasn't our fault that we were. But then that was also combined with this rule, like, pull yourself by your bootstraps sort of approach as well, of like, if you work hard enough, you can probably get somewhere. That experience is vastly different to, I think, the environments that like a lot of people who gain economic understanding get to, uh, which is like not being materially deprived and having, you know, access to good education, to all the food, nutritious food they need to, you know, build their brains up. I think because I had that instilled in me from a young age, I've always hungry from when I was a teenager really to find out why it was the economy was really essentially shitting on so many people. You know, I wanted to understand that and I was searching for it in lots of places. Like one of my most influential sources is actually a writer called John Steinbeck, mm. who's an American writer and incredibly influential on my thinking like from a young age. And I think, you know, a brilliant high school teacher who, you know, was at the top of his game but wanted to, to end out his career helping a real disadvantaged school and I just happened to come across him and he introduced me to some amazing texts and and that's when I started to, I guess, frame the thinking because if people know The Grapes of Wrath is a, a story about the economic changes in happening in America during the Dust Bowl period and how good people basically get pulled under and it's not their fault and that's kind of where the, the journey through economics I think started for me. I'd love to know um, the daily reality of what it was like to live in poverty. What were some of the things that, that you missed out on? What were some of the things that you hungered for, both literally and I guess um, in other ways? Uh, well, I mean, the hunger point is interesting. I was definitely underweight for a long period of time just because when people think literally about what it means to have not have money, they think, okay, you're not eating. But it's also just being in a permanent state of stress and anxiety, which just suppresses your appetite and working with whatever hours you can. If you can get a day's worth of work and it's a couple of jobs that you're patching together, you just work straight through it. So I think that sort of experience, I mean, from a young age, I've got memories that I realised as I left the bottom, so to speak, that these are colourful and great experiences for me as a kid. But as I got out, I realised they weren't everyone's and like I've spent my weekends going to SNFL, local footy oval and collecting cans. That was like a great activity for me because I might make $2 mm. and that was more, you know, more than the 20 cents that I would get passed on for pocket money every now and then. So that, that kind of stuff is, it builds your resilience, it builds your resourcefulness, but it was a product of, as kids, if we wanted to go to the movies, you know, we had to collect cans. If we wanted to go on school camps, we had to sell boxes of Cadbury chocolates to try and make up the amount or try and sell car washes to people. That was another thing we used to do. It's interesting once I've got out of this space and I start moving and moving in policy spaces and with those who haven't had those experiences and 
I think it's hilarious when people underestimate me, to be honest. I think hmm. anyone who knows people who have experienced life in the tumultuous world of poverty and survival, my God, they are resilient and mm. they've seen it all. You know, stuff that humans shouldn't have to see, but I have a lot of enormous respect and I guess I'm always thinking about, you know, like I said, the life behind the numbers. Mm. People in poverty aren't just to be – we don't want to engage in poverty porn, you know, that, that thing of mm. pulling up people and getting them to roll out, you know, their stories as though they are – not in power or not not aware of what's going on. You know, it's they know what's going on. They're just being held down and suffocated from material deprivation and they actually can't come together and do something about it. You know, this is why we actually really need policy change and to empower those who are actually coming together in communities. And I've got, there are some amazing warriors in my, my community back home in Adelaide who, who are very active in anti-poverty, you know, organising. And I think these people are the strongest ones I know really. Mm. Mm. We really want to get to your ideas about um, changing the game on poverty. But another mm. point I wanted to get to is you, you wrote that after things sort of turned around for you about six years ago, you'd done a, a master's degree in political economy, you're landing your first full-time job. You spent a few years feeling really angry at middle-class people. Tell us about that anger. Uh, it's connected to being underestimated, my, in my first job when I was working in Canberra in the Commonwealth Public Service, actually, I would routinely be called a bogan or be seen as just by being, as well as a young woman, you know, that, that comes with also extra hurdles. You've got to jump over all the time. But the anger was because I couldn't believe how dislocated my world was from so many other people's. And that's that was the shock of it. I'd spent a lot of my life gaining education and trying to speak to and understand my own experiences. And I'd done that because I really thought that that's what other people, at least other people knew that or understood it or experienced it themselves. And then once I got a foot in the labour market door, so to speak, and got into full-time work and started mixing with, I would say it's a different strata of society, I was shocked. And I've got, you know, memories of sitting at dinner tables in Canberra, realising that people had been talking about cheese and wine for at least you know, an hour <laughs> and just being feeling – it's a real culture shock. Yeah. That's what it is. Like I, I grew up that. at the dinner yeah. table. We'd talk about – you'd call it politics, but we didn't call it then. We would just be, you know, venting or, you know, John Howard said this and you talk about injustice, you talk about bad things that are happening, why it's wrong, and that that was just normal day-to-day convo. It was, you know, a real kind of middle-class concept of no politics at the dinner table in a broad sense across all of society. Even people working in policy, I found, were – reluctant to engage in those conversations and I just thought yeah it's, it's a real culture shock for sure. So that's Alison Pennington we're going to actually stop the interview there and bring you the second half tomorrow because there was so much to discuss she'll go on to um, talk about what her policy ideas are but what she was saying just there Katrina is really interesting about the different culture of, of middle-class people of the sorts of things they discuss the small talk you know the, yeah. the riffing on the inanities of life which when you come from a a tougher working class background that's just so bizarre and alien to you and it must have been so weird for her being an outsider and i wonder you know whether she had to really pretend to be something other than than who she mm. was and and to come from a background that was kind of the same as all those other people around her at uni and in those early years of, of working particularly in canberra having grown up in canberra that's about the most middle class place <laughs> that you can find in the country 
Yeah, well, she talks about being angry at middle-class people as well. So um, we'll ask her about that and a whole lot more in the second half of this interview on tomorrow's episode. Listener.